It's good to be here again. Uh, thanks for the invitation to be with you. Um, and we're in a, a gospel I love, the gospel of Mark. It's uh, probably the foundational gospel that we use often in university because it's a great dis- uh, it's a great gospel about discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus. And you picked up last week right at the center, the pivot point around which the entire gospel begins to turn. So Jesus is introduced at the beginning of uh, Mark 1. He comes, he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is near, repent. And he begins to do mighty acts of power, and he teaches with great authority and with great vigor and with great controversy, but every time somebody seems to get a glimpse of who he is, particularly evil spirits, he says, don't tell anyone. So throughout the first half of the Gospels, every time people seem to get close, he says, if you've caught it, don't say anything yet. But he keeps inviting people to press in. And so last week, finally everything begins to be a little clearer. Jesus finally turns to his disciples and says, so, okay, the crowds think I'm all these random people. Who do you think I am? And I think both inspired and audacious, as Peter often is, right? He proclaims, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one that God is called to save us, to rescue us from oppression, and to bring in um, a new kingdom. And then, once again, Jesus goes, don't tell anyone. But if you're a disciple at this point, things begin to go tremendously wrong. Because after Jesus acknowledges, you're right, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that God has called, anointed, to bring about a revolution in such a way that we are going to have freedom for the first time, and they've filled it with all their understanding about political freedom from the Romans and a renewal of the kingdom, Jesus begins to say crazy things, right? And we're so familiar with it, and since you've immersed yourself in Isaiah, you've even begun to anticipate the kind of things that he's going to say, but Imagine when somebody goes, you're right, I am the leader that God has anointed. I'm the one who's going to bring about a new thing, and I'm going to die. Not only am I going to die, I'm going to be rejected by all of the political leaders and the religious leaders. And you begin to go, well, that's not going to be a very effective mobilization of the people. And he goes, not only am I going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed. And it's best for you if you're killed too, because if you die, you will find life. And then you begin to scratch your head and think, is he revolutionary or just weird? And then he goes on to say these things about the nature of the world, about if you're ashamed of me, not just now, but in eternity, you're going to pay for it. And you begin to think, now he's not just weird, he's very disturbed. Right? I mean, these are odd things to say. There are even odder things to invite people to. And if you're one of the disciples, you're beginning to think, things are seriously going south right now. This is not the kind of language we're anticipating. We were anticipating a little bit more like, go Israel, we can do this, God is coming, they're going to lose, we're going to win. And he keeps going, we're going to lose, it's going to be okay, I'm going to die, you're going to die, we're all going to die, but I will be raised again. I wonder if... As you grapple with the teachings of Jesus, as you think about how he's calling you to live your life, if that audacious weirdness, disturbedness about him ever catches you for a moment, right? The the challenge for us is 2,000 years in, it's also normal for us to hear these things. And I think at a certain level, we've softened it enough so that it's comfortable, for us to, yeah, I can deny myself, and so for us it means maybe a little fasting, loving 
you know, the slightly awkward, angular person at our workplace. But what happens if you begin to take seriously Jesus' call to die? To pick up your cross, which isn't just a symbol of religious affection or commitment, but is actually a symbol of the most grotesque form of execution possible at that time and place. To wear that proudly as a sign and symbol of where he's called us to be and who he's called us to become. To rethink everything we do around that. Well, if you're the disciples at this point, I suspect you're deeply troubled. The Messiah you've identified is not doing messianic things particularly. He's not using messianic language in the way that you anticipated. He's not leading you in a way that seems to bring you triumph, except in some very confusing life-after-death-after-life kind of sort of way. And so Mark very carefully, I think, tells us the story of the transfiguration to begin to answer some of the doubts that we have, right? It's the doubts that they're experiencing about who Jesus is that we continually confront Every time in your workplace you see an opening to speak the words of the gospel to somebody who's either in pain, in doubt, or angry, and you think, I could say something, but I could get a really negative reaction. Or when you look at um, the broken relationships in your own life and your family, and you think, do I really believe blessed are the peacemakers? For they shall be called children of God, or do I just let sleeping dogs lie? It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the disruption it's going to cause. When you and I, when we all begin to think, this money do I have, um, what is it for and to whom does it belong? Or, like I was doing uh, on Friday night at Rochester, at the Rochester Institute of Technology, talking to a group of very rambunctious 18 to 22 year olds about sex, and saying everything your body desires isn't all that God has for you. And you can't merely be reduced to genitalia. And you can just watch them wrestle with the physical reality of what they're desiring and wanting, the nearly impossible and painful command that God has for them, particularly in the era where we're increasingly delaying getting married, and wrestling with what does it mean to really die to self? What you really need is some sense of confidence, don't you? And so look at how Mark sets up this passage. It's really interesting because the way that Mark writes this, um, he's calling on everybody's knowledge of the Old Testament to begin to set up what's about to happen. And so it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <laughs> he didn't know what to say, but see, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared, enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. Now, step back for a moment, and um, because we aren't nearly as steeped in the Old Testament as Peter, James, and John are, or the early readers or hearers of the book of Mark, we can often miss a little of what's going on. It's interesting that Mark points out this six-day period because he's not really, uh, Mark is not a one who uh, pays a lot of attention to chronology in terms of how long things take. Other gospel writers are very precise about these things. For Mark, everything happens immediately. There's this immediate rush. I think he uses it about 42 times in the gospel because 
as soon as the gospel begins and the announcement that the kingdom of God is broken and everything is moving as fast as it can toward the end. But here he goes, on a six-day period, after Jesus has been um, announced and proclaimed as the Messiah, they go up on a mountain. And if you're a good Jew, what you're beginning to think is, where has that kind of thing happened before, where there's some announcement, some awareness of who God is? And then we had to wait for six days before we were invited to go up a mountain with him. Well, your mind would begin to go to Exodus 24, where God says to the people, the leaders of Israel, come worship and sacrifice before me. And they say they had a vision of who God was, and then they waited for six days, and then God says, now I want Moses to come up to this holy mountain, Mount Sinai. And it was there that God reveals the, uh, the Ten Commandments and begins to invite Moses to experience who God is. And in, I think kind of the same way, Jesus is revealed. There's a period of six days that pass, and then the leaders among the disciples are invited to go up to a mountain. Well, mountains, of course, are pretty special places in Scripture. Mountains seem to be places, right, where people have an inordinately powerful experience of who God is. That's why we talk about mountaintop experiences after retreats or conferences, or particularly sweet periods of worship, right? Moses experiences God's glory and asks to see God's face in Sinai. Elijah hears the voice of God at Mount Horeb. Over and over again, the people of God meet the Lord on mountains. And you watch Jesus' life through the first half of um, the Gospels, and he's always going up to mountains to pray, to um, commission uh, his disciples, to teach the Sermon on the Mount. He goes up there um, again and again, and so they go up to this high place expecting to see God, and then all of a sudden Jesus has changed. Now, we aren't sure what the change was like. All Mark can get himself to say, and he's a little bit more terse than some of the other Gospel writers, which is one of the reasons I think I like him. He's not nearly as chatty. Um, it just says, his, glow, his clothes were um, dazzling white, whiter than any bleach could possibly make them. Now, if you lived in the ancient Near East, <clears throat> clean clothes, white-colored clothes becomes a real challenge in a dusty environment <clears throat> where you're doing a lot of hand-washing. But if you look throughout the Old and the New Testament, whenever you have people who appear before you in dazzling white, shining clothing, they're special. Right? It's usually the way that angels or God himself are described, that there's something numinous happening here. And then all of a sudden this cloud appears. And again, if you've been paying attention to the Old Testament, um, clouds are often a symbol of God's presence, right? Mount Sinai was covered with clouds. We talk about God dwelling in the clouds and riding them like his chariots in the Psalms. And so everything around this presses toward a belief and an understanding for um, the disciples and for the readers that at this mountain, God is revealing himself. And in the midst of their doubts and their confusions about who is this Messiah, what is he about, and can the things that he's commanding us to do really be reasonable, rational, can they be bearable? God makes himself known. And he says something very simple. This is my son who I love. Listen to him. He's not just anointed king figure like David, Solomon, or their descendants. This is my son. You can determine, you can figure out that I have something special for him, but I want to explain to you what only revelation can do, that I have a unique relationship with him. This is my son. He's not just somebody I send off to do my errands. This is my child. 
He's not somebody who's just merely obeying, but I love him. I delight in him. And the proper response for you, the proper response for me, listen to him. Do you see how everything that God is doing is, I think, in part Mark's way of demonstrating God is validating what Jesus has called us to do. He's not merely a good man or a great ethical teacher who offers us a better way to live. The golden rule, love one another and your neighbor as yourself, right? These are all really nice, very good things that would make the world infinitely better if we chose to obey them and embrace them. But even when he says the crazy thing, die so that you can live. Hold your life cheaply compared to the kingdom of God. I've come to divide families, mother from father, children from parents, if that's what it takes to follow the kingdom. We trust him and we obey. It's interesting as um, Peter, James, and John experience this, what, what the gospel writers, uh, Mark tells us is they were terrified. They were so befuddled, so confused by this because what they were not expecting when they went up to walk on this mountain with Jesus was that God would reveal himself. And so Peter kind of grasps in his own mind, so what do you do in a situation where God reveals himself and makes himself known? He goes, how about we make little tents, tabernacles for each one of you? Now, it seems a little incongruous, right? And as you read commentators or have heard other people preach, often they say, Peter just got flustered and just thought, well, let's hang out here for a long time. I think something a little deeper is going on with Peter because in Exodus 24, when God finally invites Moses to come up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the next series of commandments actually deal with how do you build the tabernacle. What God is saying at that moment is, here's how I'm going to live with you. And so what, and you'll remember if you know Exodus um, 32 through 34, that God used to meet his people at the tabernacle. Moses would go into the tabernacle, he'd meet with God and come out with announcements from God proclamations, advice, words of affirmation, love, but that's where Moses would go meet with God. And the rest of Israel would stand in awe and amazement that this was happening. So I think Peter thinks, well, we're up on a mountain. God is revealing himself. We should make tabernacles. And then Moses and Elijah and Jesus can all go into the tabernacles, uh, you know, listen to God and come back out and tell us what to do. It's interesting um, to me that that was Peter's gut response. you three clearly have some unique relationship with God. Moses gave us the law. Elijah was one of the most powerful of the prophets. And then there's this Jesus guy. So we're going to build tents for you, and you guys go meet with God and tell us what, what, what we should do next. But what's interesting is that God's response isn't, listen to them, the words of the law, the prophets, and Jesus. It isn't validating Moses or Elijah's ministry among Peter. It's uniquely focused on who Jesus is. Because the way to interpret the law and the prophets is through the person of Jesus Christ. It's because in the end, as followers of Jesus, our ultimate authority is who Jesus is, and it's through Jesus that we understand the Old Testament. That's why if you've ever tried to share scripture, particularly um, any of the servant songs that you all have read uh, in the book of Isaiah, with Jewish friends, it makes no sense to them. It makes a lot of sense to us, right? You read Isaiah 53 and you think, 
<laughs> that has to be Jesus. How could anyone not see it? But if you're a faithful Jew, it makes no sense because how we interpret what Isaiah is doing is so foreign to their understanding of how the Old Testament was supposed to work that they, that they can kind of see why we're shoehorning it in, but it isn't consistent with what they've been doing. Because Jesus radically reinterprets and clarifies what the words of the Old Testament mean. All of a sudden, as the early disciples began to flip through um, their scrolls, I guess, or scroll through their scrolls. I'm not sure what you do with a scroll. <laughs> Twist through their scrolls. Um, they began to see resonances in the Old Testament that had never occurred to the people of God before, but which all became clear as they saw who Jesus was. Is probably what made that Emmaus walk so amazing. What God does is that he allows... Um, Moses and Elijah to be there, but as soon as Peter begins to think that there may be some equivalence, maybe some equality between those three characters, he immediately removes Moses and Elijah. So the soul focuses, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. I think for us, really what we need at times like this when we're wrestling with what does God call us to do and who we should become, or for you as a church, what you should do about the Wider Welcome Program. How is it going to challenge you, stretch you, grow you, and confront you with the reality of who God is, what your call is, and what the next right step is? And I have no particular opinion on that other than every major opportunity for change at the church forces us with those questions, doesn't it? What we need to know is that we've heard the voice of God and it's focused us on Jesus, and then we can have the confidence to move ahead, wherever ahead means in that situation. I think just about two weeks ago um, at CUNY Baruch College, it was during one of those snowstorm days. I've noticed the snow piled up all around um, your driveway, and I suspect it was much snowier here than down in New York City, or we've managed to dump it in the Hudson faster than anybody else. I happened to be out of town for many of those days, so I was just watching it on the news. Um, but... Um, at, most of the school had closed down, but a number of the students still showed up. There had been a few classes that hadn't been canceled. And so a group of about three students were uh, singing and praying at the club space, which is um, the little office given to the university students at Baruch. Now, personally, I don't usually recommend our students do that. I'm not that interested in creating little worship spaces on campus because my goal is actually to send people out as ambassadors and messengers. And if they huddle and kind of sing and worship and pray in a little closeted room off in the corner of campus, um, it's really comforting for them, but it's not very effective uh, for evangelism. So I, I tend to discourage it, except, of course, God likes to shame me. And so what happened was... <laughs> Um, David, who is a graduating senior, he's thinking about coming on staff with university. He's a tall, strikingly handsome young man, was singing. They were worshiping about who Jesus was and what the cross had accomplished. When all of a sudden, you know, in the background, he thought he heard somebody crying. Now, people often cry on college and university campuses, but it's usually closer to finals week <laughs> and never quite so much in the middle of the year. So he's a little intrigued. So the other guys kept singing and he walked out the door and poked his head around the corner, and he saw sitting by the door of the club room this woman, woman weeping. They're not that bad as singers. <laughs> and so there was no real aesthetic reason for the weeping. And so I don't know what you do when you see somebody crying. A lot of us, those of us particularly who have grown up in New York or who've been in New York a long time, our first reaction is give them space and a little privacy. So you kind of turn and walk away. But David thought, 
We're singing about Jesus. The school is nearly closed, and there's a woman weeping at our door. Okay, maybe it's a sign. So he walked up to her and said, um, are you okay? Can I help you? And she said, I've just been listening to you sing, and everything that you sing um, just resonates so deeply with where I'm at and the pain that I'm feeling right now. And I just didn't know what to do, so I just decided to sit here and listen to you sing, and I've been crying ever since. Now, right, on the one hand, if you're filled with faith at that moment, it feels like a door has really opened. For those of us who may be more like my personality, you're thinking, okay, this could be a very awkward conversation right now. What do I do? But what David did was say, well, you know, um, do you understand what we were singing about? And she said, I'm not sure, but it, the lyrics of what you sang just are resonating, so can you explain them to me? And so David began to walk her through, actually, the law, the prophets, and the gospel. Well, this is what we believe about the brokenness of the world that we live in. Does that make any sense to you? And she goes, oh, yeah, if you knew my life right now, you'd totally understand that. And he said, well, the hope and the longing we have is that God would make things new. Does, is that what you're resonating with? She said, I, I need something new in my life, and the world that I live in needs to be changed. And he said, well, this is what we believe Jesus Christ did when he died in our place and on our behalf on the cross. Does, and, and as he died, he came back to life to demonstrate to us what life really looks like. That death and sacrifice aren't the end, but they're merely the beginning of the life that God intends for us. And that there's hope and power and change at the other side. Does that make sense to you? And, and they had this long conversation about the nature of the gospel and the new life that God offers us. And you're like, I think, yeah, that makes sense. And then I think what David did was critical. What David said is, look, I don't think it's an accident that on a day when most of the school is closed, we're singing uh, worship songs here in the club room. I don't think it's an accident that on the day the school is closed, you were planning to go home early, you ended up staying late, and you happened to hear this music. I don't think it was an accident that we're having this conversation right now. Do you want to become a follower of Jesus? Right. What David was doing in that part of the conversation, he was saying, it seems like God has set you up. Everything about the way today has happened should have made you anticipate that God was intending to speak to you right now. Everything about this conversation is God's voice to you, confirming who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished. This is his beloved son. Listen to him as he makes his offer of life to you. And she did. And she became a Christian. Right? If we had that confidence that God was speaking and we knew what he was doing, we could move ahead freely. This was particularly good news because if you think about the context of the first hearers of Mark, the assumption is it was the Christians in Rome who were facing persecution perhaps under Nero. So all of a sudden, right, when Mark is quoting Jesus saying things like, um, you'll find your life by losing it, those Christians who are experiencing persecution and potential death um, at the Colosseum or by beheading are thinking, okay, this isn't metaphorical personal death like I bear my little cross. I could actually be physically crucified next week, and I can trust you with that. Well, they hear this voice from God affirming who Jesus is, filling out the picture, not merely an anointed political messiah, but actually God's son in the flesh. <laughs> And I think what's interesting is the other reason uh, 
Peter's instinctive reaction to build a tabernacle was so misguided was what God was really ending up saying, though I don't think Peter understood at the time, was, I don't need a tabernacle to dwell in anymore. I am tabernacling among you. That's what John meant when he said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. I don't need a tent. I am. And I am here in Jesus. Well, so Jesus gets this great setup, right? They've gone up in a kind of Mount Sinai-like experience, and they've had a revelation of what God looks like and who he is. It's Jesus. And what's the first thing that Jesus begins to teach about after God says, listen to him. Jesus goes, don't tell any about this until after my death and resurrection. There he goes again, talking about death and resurrection. Why? Because I think it's particularly at the point of Christ's death and resurrection that you see God's glory and his personhood most fully, right? It's at the cross of Christ where you see the wisdom of God and the justice of God and the holiness of God executing judgment against the sin of the world and the love of God and the mercy of God demonstrating his great mercy that he takes it in our place and on our behalf and defeats death himself. It's at the point of the cross where Jesus says, I've called you to come and die with me, but I'm going to do it first. I'm going to show you how it's done. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I look forward to the resurrection, which is to come. You see, Jesus doesn't just teach about his death and resurrection so that we can follow. He actually models it for us as he goes. It's at the point of the cross where we see God's glory in Jesus. And I think what Mark seems to be suggesting is at the cross, when we pick up our own cross, we will experience God's glory as well when we actually die and trust ourselves into God's hands, worrying not about what other people do because we've offered them forgiveness, but actually trust ourselves in the resurrection so that not so much like the hymn, so that the world, things of the world go strangely dim, but knowing exactly how important security may be to us, how desperately needy we are for that relationship, how terribly we afraid are, may be of loss. It's at precisely that point that we commit our spirits and who we are into God's hands. And we enter into death, but with the promise of resurrection, because what Paul reminds us of, isn't it, that the very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us right now. And the rest of the story, I think, picks up this idea that Jesus is not just a great teacher for us, but he's a model in the way that he chooses to live. Because what goes on, what seems to happen is, um, well, it just gets a little confusing there, right? Because Jesus is coming down, as they come down the mountain, gives them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So he's talking about this death and resurrection thing again. And then the disciples um, really struggle with this, as I trust we are right now. Um, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They still are not very comfortable with this death and resurrection thing, as well they shouldn't. Right, Because if we too glibly say that we're comfortable with it, I suspect it's because we don't really understand how painful death is going to be, especially a daily death where you're picking up your cross. And so they do this funny thing um, and ask him, so why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, why are Elijah and Moses in the story at all to begin with? Well, the easy answer, of course, is that the law and the prophets... Um, Moses and Elijah seem to fulfill 
um, those categories. The other thing, though, is there are two other ways that I think Moses and Elijah are pretty significant, and they play into the second half of this passage. Um, both Moses and Elijah are exemplars of people who are attempting to deliver the people of Israel, right? Moses delivered the people of Israel out of the political oppression that they experienced in the land of Egypt. Elijah attempted to deliver the people of Israel under King Ahab from the idolatry that they experienced. So both political oppression and spiritual oppression uh, were being confronted by these two great men of God. And they were wildly successful in one hand, right? The people of Israel got out of Egypt and reached the promised land. And you all remember the story of Mount Carmel where um, Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal and there's this great fire and um, they're all slaughtered and it's this great triumph. But as the stories continue, you realize... For all that Moses could get the people out of Egypt, he couldn't quite get all of the Egypt out of the people, right? For all that Elijah could demonstrate his power over um, the prophets of Baal at that time, the power of Baal over the people of Israel wasn't so easily eliminated. They could get the people of Israel just so far, but they couldn't fundamentally change their hearts. And that's why Jesus is both with them, because he's going to deliver his people, but he's going to go far beyond them. And there'll be a heart of flesh, not just a heart of stone. Elijah and Moses also come up in um, the last book of the Old Testament, so it's often easy to find, Malachi. Um, when God is announcing, the day of the Lord is coming when I'm going to renew and change everything around us. And in Malachi 4, he ends the book with the saying, Remember the law of my servant Moses, all the decrees and law I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Right? The last word that the Lord gives in the Old Testament is, remember what you know. The law was meant for your good. Live it out. Worship me faithfully, live together fruitfully, and all will be well with you. I'm going to send somebody who's going to renew the people of Israel, and if you respond well, then your families will be restored. There'll be life again in the land, but if you reject me, there's going to be judgment. And I think God brings Moses and Elijah as partially a visual reminder of Malachi for Four and five. So the disciples are reflecting on this passage, right? Elijah's supposed to come, and he's supposed to bring about this renewal. He's preparing the way of the Lord, which is the way that the uh, book of Mark begins. So if Elijah's coming to bring renewal, why does the Son of Man have to die is essentially the question they're asking, right? If Elijah's successful, we don't really need somebody to go die, as you, you know, as you seem to think, Jesus. So they ask Jesus this kind of side-handed question. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus understands the question, right? He says, look, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. So why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? You're probably wondering that, aren't you, disciples? And if you're reading this passage, you're certainly wondering, because it seems to make no sense until you unpack it a little bit. But what Jesus goes on to say is this. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, this is a little cryptic. But we know from having read the earlier chapters of the book of Mark that John the Baptist dressed an awfully a lot like Elijah. He seemed to do the things that the Elijah figure was supposed to do. 
proclaiming a cause, uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins. He was bringing about renewal in such a way that he prepared the way of the Lord. Right? That's very clear from the way Mark sets up chapter 1 of Mark. Um, this doesn't mean that John the Baptist is like a reincarnated Elijah, lest we read that into the text from a completely foreign religious worldview. It's just that an Elijah figure, one who did all of the things that Elijah did, has now come. And what Jesus seems to point out, though, is when this Elijah figure came to bring about renewal, they didn't do everything that he told them to do. They did everything they wanted to do to him. The people didn't respond to Elijah's message. Instead, they took it out on Elijah. And so what he seems to be saying both is they've rejected Elijah's message, so judgment's coming. And if they did that to the Elijah figure, what makes you think they won't do it to the Son of Man figure? And if we, 2,000 years later, think about it a little bit, if they did it to the one who prepared the way of the Lord, and they did it to the Lord himself, why should we be so surprised that they would do it to those who follow the way of the Lord and who follow the Lord himself? Because I think what actually happens is that the Elijah figure was rejected and judgment does come. And the beautiful, wonderful, scandalous thing that happens, as the song reminds us, is that when the judgment of God came, it wasn't meted out across the world as it should have been. But the judgment of God was fully expressed on the cross as Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world on behalf of all people at all times for all of their sins. And in a beautiful, scandalous act, God took it upon himself and died in our place. And perhaps that's a little bit of the way to think about the question of what does it mean to pick up our own cross. I don't think it means merely the physical travails or burdens that we experience as bad as those may be. It's certainly not just the difficult people around us, right? Oh, they're just my cross to bear. Or the weird little personality defects, usually amusing but a little irritating that we talk about when we talk about our cross. I think it literally means, as a people of God, what would it look like if we were to interpose ourselves? between the places where God's judgment should be expressed and the brokenness of the world is most deeply felt, and to place ourselves there as people both who intercede and act on God's behalf to bring about hope, forgiveness, redemption, healing in the places of the world's deepest pain, brokenness, and dysfunction. To pick our, our cross means to hold our own needs lightly at that point and to consider the desperate state of the world and to sit ourselves there, whether it's dramatic and global or whether it's merely as intimate as inserting ourselves into that long simmering family conflict where years of sin and brokenness and dysfunction have eroded away everything and where really God's judgment should be played out and to insert ourselves as peacemakers who are willing to sacrifice reputation and relationship for the purposes of peacemaking or wherever it is that God announces to you at the deepest pain of brokenness of the world, which you know and you can identify because it's the one that resonates most deeply in your heart. Put yourself there and ask then, how is the Lord calling me to bring about 
a little bit of an announcement of his kingdom in this place. That the patterns of relationship that we have aren't merely indelibly etched into our DNA, but we can make a change. Where the patterns of sin and systemic destruction that we see wreaked out all over our communities and our schools and our government could be different because the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us to see it happen. When we think about what Jesus says, it's insane. It's crazy. Frederick Buechner, um, an American uh, pastor and novelist, once put it this way, if the world is sane, then Jesus is mad as a hatter, and the Last Supper is the mad tea party. The world says, mind your own business, and Jesus says, there is no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success, and Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully, the life you save may be your own. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, law and order, and Jesus says, love. The world says, get, and Jesus says, give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is crazy as a coot, and anyone who thinks that he can follow him without being a little crazy too is laboring under less the cross and under illusion. We are fools for... Christ's sake, Paul says, faith says, the faith that ultimately the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, the lunacy of Jesus saner than the grim sanity of the world. And the confidence we have as we pursue this crazy, insane route is that like the disciples, we've seen the glorified and transfigured Jesus post-resurrection as we've come to know him. And we're reminded again and again as we hear the voice of God through scripture and worship and prayer and in our community together, this is God's son. God loves him. So let's listen to him. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess when I preach sermons like this, um, it challenges me to wrestle again with um, where in the brokenness of the world do you desire me to stand in a crazy countercultural, counterintuitive way so that your wisdom may be known uh, in the foolishness of the world, so that hope is seen in the darkness. And I confess I can live in such a busy, frenetic way. I've paid no attention to that. So Lord, open my ears so that I can hear your call. Open my ears so that I hear your voice and that I can see Jesus rightly. And then Lord, I'm grateful that after everything else is taken away, it will still be Jesus with us. Under that, we hope and pray and trust. Amen.